Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny will be interviewing Shelby Forsythia. She's an intuitive grief guide and podcast host of Coming Back, Conversations on Life After Loss. And the two of them will be discussing grief stories, grief recovery, and how to come out of there from the other side as a whole. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, attorney turned life coach, Sunny Joy McMillan. We're here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. KKNW, bringing you amazing coaches, teachers, authors, and healers who are on a mission to encourage you, inspire you, and give you tools to live a life filled with peace, joy, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch us live, you can always access the show archives, which are found at 1150kknw.com. You can also connect with me via Facebook. I'm there by my name, Sunny Joy McMillan. Or you can also connect with uh, our page for the show, which is Sunny in Seattle Radio. And if you follow that page on Facebook, you will get links to our upcoming guests so you can stay up to date on who will be on the show on any given week. You can also find out more about me and connect with me for coaching uh, through my website, which is goldenoversoul.com. And that's goldenoversoul.com. And we're just going to jump straight into our interview today with awesome guest, Shelby Forsythia. And it's kind of funny. Um, so Shelby, we met um, via the interwebs. Um, which is always interesting to connect with people that way um, that are, you know, in opposite parts of the country. She's in Chicago. But where we sit today, we're both in studio recording this um, here in Seattle, which is always a special treat. Um, Shelby Forsythia is an intuitive grief guide and podcast host of Coming Back, Conversations on Life After Loss. Um, You can find out more and check out her website if you're near your computer now, and that is shelbyforsythia.com. Shelby is spelled S-H-E-L-B-Y. For Scythia's F-O-R-S-Y-T-H-I-A. So shelbyforsythia.com if you want to check out her work. But, um, you know, I've talked a little bit about grief on the show in the past, um, I guess, probably year and a half. Because as many of the regular listeners know, I lost my kitty of 20 years in April of 2017. I lost my dog of 14 years in Uh, June, very unexpectedly. I know he was 14, but it still seemed very sudden in June of 2017. Um, And I've had a couple of other losses since then. And I'm really fascinated by the process of grief, of dying, um, of um, the actual uh, signposts of dying and what happens. And so it was really interesting to when I found Shelby's work. um, This is what she does. (laughs) She guides people through the grief process And I think given my own journey, um, it's really nice to have tools and it's really nice to be, um, I don't know, comfortable with grief is the right word, but to know what to do with it when you're in it. Because in my experience, if we don't process it as it's happening or at least deal with it at some point, it gets stored in our body and it comes out in not great ways. And I think it can actually be a pretty mystical experience if you allow yourself to lean into it. So we're just going to bring Shelby right on and she's going to tell us all about her work with grief. Shelby, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so stoked to be here. Yeah, I know. It's so live and in person. (laughs) All the way from Chicago. All the way from Chicago. I love it. Flew in on Friday and here on Monday. Awesome. Yeah, as we're recording this, we're we're doing a little pre-record this time around, but it's so much fun that we get to be in the studio together. Um, So 
I just want to start um, because you identify yourself as a student of grief, mm-hmm. but you have said that you never intended to study it, um, and yet your current work is as an intuitive grief guide. And I'd really love for you to share with our listeners, you know, your background, your own grief journey, and how you came to do this work. Yeah, so that's a it's a big journey. I'm like, everybody ready? We got to put seatbelts on oh, for yeah, this yeah. one. Um, it's it's just long. So <laughs> I, I I always tell people that I had a very idyllic childhood. I use mm. this phrasing for almost every single show I've been interviewed on because it's true. It's it's just the way that I picture my childhood growing up. I I grew up in North Carolina. It was very suburban. The neighbors were you know an equidistant house away from each other. Everybody's yards were the same size and you know, people would walk their dogs and wave at the neighbors. And my sister and I, we had piano lessons and dance lessons and parents that were supportive at every event that we were at. And wow. good neighbor friends. We never really, you know, moved schools or moved houses. Or if it was, it was very smooth. And, you know, everybody was kept informed. So no major, like, upsets, no upheavals, no major traumas. My parents weren't fighting. You know, they are still very much in love. Nobody major to our family or major to us. Uh, passed away or passed away suddenly or if they did you know we were allowed to go to the funeral things like that so just a very idyllic childhood Um, and then something happened uh, that I affectionately refer to as the four years of hell Mm. and this is unfortunately took it coincided with my my college experience the four years that I was in college but it was not because I was in school Um, it started off with my dad losing his job of 19 years. Uh, he was a structural engineer, very much a math brain. He was a left brain and my mom was a right brain. So they made a very good, uh, they helped us equally with our homework, but different kinds of homework. <laughs> nice. So my dad would be math and science and my mom would be uh, English. And it was super helpful growing up. Uh, he'd help us with our problems and she would read our essays. Um, but uh, but he lost his job and it, it, it was coming. We knew it was coming because layoffs had been happening pretty consistently at his company and he was one of the last holdouts. But when it actually happened, it was the first time that that instability had touched our family in kind of a, an altering or a permanent way. Um, and, uh, and that was kind of jarring. I think I was 18 or 19 when that happened, and all of a sudden it was like we didn't go on vacations anymore. We didn't really eat out as much anymore. And so things kind of started to shift, and they didn't go back to the way they were. And so mm-hmm. something was permanently changing there, and that was the first crack in the structure. And then less than a year later, my sister and I actually – I was home for the summer and my sister and I witnessed my dad having a seizure, but not in your like traditional, people think of seizure and they think shaking, convulsing, falling down on the ground. Right. And this was a type of seizure that was like hallucinogenic almost. Interesting. And so we witnessed him having this moment where his head kind of tilted. He was sitting in um, his recliner in the, in the living room and we just finished watching a movie and everybody was going to bed. And he had complained of headaches for a long, long time. He'd always had headaches because his job was stressful, but his head had tilted, and he was looking at this glass. I remember it was one of those, like, see-through tumblers that you can put, like, water or iced coffee mm-hmm. or something in, and it was green. And in this tumbler, he had seen images of his grandfather, my great-grandfather, and a couple of his relatives, and he was like, don't you see them? They're there. Huh. And he was very convinced that another reality was happening right in front of him, and it was really fast. It happened in less than about a two-minute span. Um and my sister and I were so scared after it happened. We didn't really say anything. We just thought he was tired and he and my mom went to bed. But that less than an hour later, we were back downstairs in my parents' room. Okay, okay, something just happened. Yeah. We need to tell you something just happened. And so he's like, I'm just tired, you know, the whole brush off, things like that. Um, 
but his headaches weren't getting any better. And I think in the next like four or five months, timelines on grief are always really shaky for me because looking back, I don't remember quite the succession that things happened. But in in less than six months, he was diagnosed with two of some of the largest recorded brain aneurysms in the state of North Carolina. And this is, we're right next to Duke Medical yeah. Center. Like people come here when things are, are bad. Yeah. Um, and, and even when he was going through the machine, I don't know if it was an MRI or a CT scan or whatever they used to find these things. Um, but they, the nurse's faces told all, you know, that we've never seen anything this big or this, yeah. and they were symmetrical. So one on one side and one on the other uh, of his head. And, the solution to these, of course, was brain surgery. We have to crack open your skull. We have to go in there. We have to tie things off or drain them or clip them or however. I didn't know how it worked, and I didn't want to get into the, the gory details. But they were like, these are very close to rupturing. We're surprised they haven't already. You are close to death was basically kind of the prognosis there. And we couldn't get in immediately for surgery because with head trauma and things in the brain, there are always people who are in more need than you. Um, and so we got put on a waiting list. Oh, goodness. And uh, And – I was in college at the time. This was my freshman or sophomore year in college. And every single time the phone would ring, after getting the phone call of that first news of your dad has some of the biggest brain aneurysms in North mm-hmm. Carolina and he might die, mm-hmm. uh, every time the phone rang was a panic attack. And oh. so in the middle of the night at 8 in the morning at you know 5 p.m. coming out of class, and most of the time it was my parents just wanted to talk and have a conversation. But every single time the phone rang, even if it was a solicitor, I'd have a panic attack. Yeah. Some unknown numbers calling me and telling me my family is dead. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, and that was a struggle to get through both of these brain surgeries because, I mean, people go digging around in your brain. Something's bound to change. Yeah. And so seeing him come out of these surgeries and and be – it looked like he got hit, hit by a Mack truck. Yeah. Like some big semi just sort of run him over because, you know, bruises all over his head and things like yeah. that. And then just not even being, original, being able to remember who we were. He thought I was my mom and my mom was his mom and – just different name mix-ups, things like that. It was There was one funny moment that I remember uh, where he was coming out of surgery and he started singing uh, Madonna's Starlight, Starbright. Starlight, Starbright, first star I see tonight. And I don't, we don't know where it came from, uh, but it was hilarious. And so we sang that back to him for, for a couple months after his surgeries. Um, but because they were on different sides of his head, he had to have one brain surgery heal, and then they had to do the oh other side four or five months later. And so there was equal risk of death yeah. both times, and then recovery took a lot longer. And and I can't tell you, we had such a wonderful community surrounding our family of casseroles and meal trains and carpools for me and my sister to go to and from college and and things like that. But but in in that point in time, you're suspended in in a perpetual state of crisis Ugh. almost. And people are are helping you get through each day, and you're trying to get yourself through each day. And and you know, he was insisting on driving and where are my keys? And we're like, you just had to, you know, can't do that. And of course he wasn't working anymore. So money was a conversation that was coming up. And during all of this, I was taking 15 to 18 hours and working three jobs. And just the amount of stress that I suddenly found myself in was ridiculous. And that even, that was not, <laughs> that's just the beginning right. of the four years of hell. And so the second half of my college career, um, junior and senior year, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. So as soon as my dad was fully recovered from these brain surgeries, uh, we, we thought we were out of the woods, no yeah. more meal trains, no more casseroles, you know, no more carpools. And, you know, we were going to plan a big, big family vacation and, and, uh, and things like that. And then my mom sat us down. We called a family meeting, which are never good. And, uh, and she's like, girls, my sister and I, I have breast cancer. And we were like, what? <sighs> Just like you get to the top of the hill and you think you're done. And then there's a bigger hill in front of you. And you're like, God dang it all. And you're just so frustrated with 
with what life is dishing out to you. Like, really, yeah. I just ate a crap sandwich, and now yeah. you're going to make me eat another crap sandwich. <laughs> and so, and so, immediately treatments began: chemo, you know, radiation, things like that, to shrink the tumor and then operate on it. And there was swelling in her fingernails and hair, and the whole thing that you expect with, with cancer, because I believe it was stage three. It was up there. It was it was one where they needed to do something with it. Yeah. And uh, and then she came out of it. Um, probably six or seven months later, she was declared cancer free in January of 2013. And we're like, okay, now, now mm-hmm. we're out of the woods. Now the whole family's taken care of. Granted, none of us can work. We're missing body parts. We're like yeah, all this other yeah. stuff. We've weathered the storm. We've done it. And yes. and we were celebrating. And and this beautiful organization sent my dad and my mom on a honeymoon, uh, like a second honeymoon trip for their. Um, for one of their anniversaries in May, and it was it was really neat, and we were kind of, we were starting to feel like we could celebrate life again, and then really suddenly in the winter of that same year in 2013, my mom had this cold that wouldn't go away, mm-hmm. and it was my senior year of college, and every time I would call home, it seemed like she was coughing or sneezing or hacking or something like that, and it wouldn't go away, and uh, and I had gone on a scholarship trip to New York in November of 2013. It was very close to Thanksgiving, and I came back to North Carolina to school where I was going to school. And uh, as soon as I walked into my apartment, I saw there was a voicemail on my phone. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I'm still in the mm-hmm. the phone ring, somebody's dead kind Something's of bad, phase. Yeah. Something bad is happening. So I, I picked up the phone. And very long story short, my dad said, your mom doesn't have a cold. They think it might be pneumonia. And then less than a couple of hours later, he was like, it's not pneumonia. The cancer is back. Ugh. And there's fluid on her lungs. And she is literally drowning from the inside. And... I'm getting all of this news. I remember screaming. Screaming comes in a lot in my story. I just literally hung up the phone and I just collapsed on my bedroom floor. And my roommates came running in and the dog came running in. And we were all just there in a pile on the floor together. And I was like, I cannot believe this is my life. I was I was 21 years old. I cannot <sighs> believe this is my life. And, and uh, she had one surgery to drain fluid off of her lungs. They had put a port in a couple of other things. I stayed out of the medical aspect of it a lot, mostly because I have a queasy stomach and most another reason because I didn't want to envision my mom undergoing all these yeah, procedures. Yeah. But but uh, they gave her an oxygen tank to wheel around at home and I came home for Christmas break, which was like December 12th or 13th um, of that year. And we got a phone call on the 19th. The doctors called our house after the first surgery. They're like, we think it went well. We got some of it. You know, but... Our decision now is, and this is calling from Duke Medical Center, so we weren't at some podunk little mm-hmm. hospital getting this news. They said, if, if if you want to continue living, if you want to prolong your life, we're doing prolong your life jargon at this point, mm-hmm. we could do more surgeries. If you don't want to prolong your life, essentially this yeah. is what will kill you. Yeah. And called our last family meeting and... My mom sat my sister and I and my dad down in the living room and she just, she basically said, I'm done. Did you want her to fight? No. Okay. You know what's funny is people ask me that a lot. Did you, did you want her to fight? Did you want her to keep going? And she was so clear from the very beginning. She was like, I don't want to die in a hospital. If I'm going to die, I don't want to die in a hospital. Yeah. And and I, I will never forget this, like, last family meeting because so many sentiments were conveyed in, like, one half-hour moment of my life. It's, like, all compressed emotion and compressed time. Mm-hmm. And um, what sucks is that she knew. 
she was conscious enough in her dying to know exactly what emotional state she was leaving all of us in. Yeah. And what comes up a lot is that her mom died when she was 22. Ah. So she was like, I know exactly where I'm leaving you. I won't be there for your weddings. I won't be there for your graduations. I won't be there. And she, she knew everything that was about to happen. And, it, and she couldn't fix it. She had to admit as a mother, she's like, this, I can't take care of you anymore beyond this. I can no longer. This is the point where I stop being your mom. And, you know, you, you never stop being a mom to your children, even in, in death. But, but this is the point where I have to stop showing up for you. I can no longer show up for you anymore. And for my dad, you know, they'd been married almost 25 years. And she's like, I don't want to leave you either. Yeah. And, um, and I will never forget that conversation. And a week later, the day after Christmas is when she died. They gave us months, you know, with hospice, and we had called in and, you know, done all the drugs and everything and keeping her comfortable, and her friends would come by and visit, and she did one last communion because she was raised Catholic and, and all this other stuff, and we thought we had months. But as hospice came in, it was like as soon as she knew she was going to die and mm-hmm. had chosen to die, mm-hmm. it was fast. It was quickly downhill. And that week was so full of such high emotions I was blogging while all this was happening too I was like on top I was on the internet because all my friends were home for Christmas break and and I just remember having these these huge highs where I would like I need to get out of the house I need to go running it was December in North Carolina it was like raining and stuff mm-hmm. and um and I would need to go running and need to be outside and then have these lows where I would just stay in bed for 12 hours and not leave and then these other moments where I'd lock my this is the most vivid picture I have of my mom dying is me locking myself in the cab of my dad's truck in the garage, parked in the garage, and just screaming until I had no voice anymore. Mm-hmm. I was cursing out God, and I was cursing out my mom, and I was cursing out the doctors, and I was cursing out cancer, and, and myself. I'm like, how dare you let this be my life? Yeah. I was screaming at the universe. I said, how dare you let this be my life? Just take her. If you're going to take her already, just take her. Mm. And I was so mad. I was so angry. And yet, and then at the same time, counterbalance. We're holding two things in each of our hands. I had these tender moments where I'd sit by my mom's side, and I knew she couldn't talk to me or see me anymore but the last thing that goes is hearing and I promised her everything I was going to do with my life I promised to sing I promised to write I promised to you know carry on this legacy of she's such a joyful lady of just like continuing to bring joy and this radiant humor and friendship to everybody that she met so all of this was so I don't have enough hands to hold everything that's happening and I was just so like all of us were getting yeah. ready to burst. We were all, and yet we were all being humans eating lasagna in this house together that yeah. somebody had brought covered with tinfoil. And, um, and that was the moment that changed my life. Up until, up until that point, dad losing his job, the brain surgeries, you know, relationships and breakups and everything that had happened in between, I was like, I can handle this. Yeah. And when my mom died, I said, I can't handle this. And, and everything after that was just like a fog. I went back to school. I quit one of my jobs. I graduated that same year. Um, and then I just like lived in this this space of not knowing what to do. It was a simultaneous unplugging from life and then a desperate trying to plug back into life. So yeah. I was reaching for books and resources and doctors and nutritionists and healers and all these other things. I'm like, can you help me? Can you help me? And and some things did and some things didn't, but but to kind of move into what got me started Doing Grief and Grief Work is a book called The Grief Recovery Method Handbook. And somebody had left this at our house as my mom was dying. But, of course, like in the moment, you're like, screw that. That's not going to (laughs) be helpful to me right now. Right. Um, 
but I had found it in our local library and I was like, okay, let's, let's see what happens. This is where the student of grief comes in because I started checking out books on grief in the library and I haven't stopped since. It's yes. been like three years of this now. <laughs> and, um, and I read this book and for the very first time, it was somebody that was not only seeing, hearing, and validating my experience of grief because you can get that from a lot of books. You can get that from memoirs. You can get that from hearing other people's stories, even by watching TV pro like This Is Us or like programs yeah. on TV where, where people are dying or going through strife. But it was like, here's what to do with it. Yeah. Here's how to complete what was left incomplete. And it doesn't mean we're going to take the pain away. It doesn't mean we're going to take the memories away. But it's like, here's how you can communicate everything that was left unsaid. And I realized that's where a lot of the pain was for me. That's where the pain lived, uh, is you died before I was ready, basically. Yes. And, um, and that led to me opening into this world of not just spirituality necessarily, but moving the energy of grief. Yeah. Using it not necessarily as a, as a catalyst, but like we can put this in different places. We can take all this junk that's circling around in our heads and we can put it on paper, or we can put it in music, or we can put it in. It was using grief to plug into different elements of our life. Um, and then I also got certified in Reiki in those years uh, in between. In about the past two, three years or so, I've certified level one and level two because that was a modality. The grief recovery method put me in touch with my brain and grief and kind of sorting through a lot of what was circling around in my brain. But Reiki brought me back down into my body. Interesting. And you, the mind-body connection can get so severed in grief because you forget almost, you're almost in denial about the fact that you're in pain in both places. And so yeah. you fail to acknowledge that they're connected together. Yeah. Um, and so Reiki for so much of my uh, grief has kind of plugged me back in. And now bringing this all front and center I use the combination of tools that I learned and mind tricks and like step one, two, three progressions combined with this energy of I see where your heart is. I see where your throat is. I see where your spirit is trapped in your body or, or too open or too closed or maybe feeling stagnant in some spaces. I use that combination of student of grief and intuitive, like these gut feelings mm -hmm. that I get about my clients to really create courses and create spaces for them where they can express their stories, exactly what they're going through in the moment. I'm not here to fix anybody or analyze anybody or criticize anybody or judge anybody, but to provide this space that I had wished that I had to kind of wrestle with it and work through it and and work it out. And that's how the podcast was birthed also, is to give more space for these stories to be allowed to happen, for this wrestling to be allowed to happen, and for the coming back also, permission to latch on to what works and discard what doesn't. That's a very long story and a very long answer, but that's the grief story, how I got involved, and kind of how I'm helping people with it now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you are just tuning in, I am joined today uh, in the studio by Shelby Forsythia. You can find out more at shelbyforsythia.com. Forsythia is spelled F-O-R-S-Y-T-H-I-A. Um, and Shelby is an intuitive grief guide, and she also has the podcast she just mentioned, which is called Coming Back, Conversations on Life After Loss. You can find that on iTunes or pretty much anywhere where podcasts are found, and right? Spotify now, Spotify. which is oh, very exciting. Awesome. Yes. So you can check that out. It's a really great podcast. Um, uh, whether or not you're suffering in the moment with grief, I think everybody can identify, and she covers a lot of really good ground with a lot of really interesting guests. So we're going to take our one and only break right now. You are listening to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy, and we will be back in just a few to continue our conversation. 
Are you ready to get unstuck from a bad marriage and embrace your best life? If you're anything like me, you may have spent years creating a life that looks pretty good on paper. There's just one problem. Your marriage is unhappy and unfulfilling, but you're too scared to trade your comfortable life for a future full of unknowns. In my new book, Unhitched, I will give you the tools you need to make the right decisions about your marriage, as well as the confidence that your future can be better and brighter than you can even imagine. I share my own very personal story, and I will guide you through a clear process that will enable you to answer the question, should I stay or should I go? It's a process that will help you tune out fears and unwanted advice, and instead tune into your own intuition and inner wisdom, as well as exit a marriage gracefully and feel secure about your future. Get ready to trade confusion and stagnation for your best life. Unhitched, unlock your courage and clarity and unstick your bad marriage. Available for pre-order today on Amazon.com. NHL star Matt Martin for American Humane. Hi, I'm Matt Martin, and in all my years of playing professional hockey, I've gotten my share of bruises and injuries. But for many who really put their lives on the line every day, it's not always the injuries you can see that hurt the most. I'm talking about our veterans. Every single day, 184 veterans are diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. And tragically, 20 take their own lives. When medications and therapy don't help, professionally trained service dogs can. American Humane, serving the U.S. military for over 100 years, has put together a free guide to help veterans obtain these life-saving service animals. If you are a veteran or know a veteran struggling with PTS, please go to AmericanHumane.org for this free, downloadable resource. Let's give our veterans the help they need to win their battle. For more information, visit AmericanHumane.org. Sunny in Seattle, radio that positively shines. After countless tries to find healing for a devastating low back pain, Dr. Andy Marone met with his mentor and discovered a balance and clarity he never thought possible. He left his job as a software engineer and began a lifelong journey of learning the power of quality chiropractic care and enzyme nutrition and never looked back. He believes in not just treating pain, but removing roadblocks and paving the way to a happy and healthy life. Join Dr. Andy's Wellness Corner Mondays from 9 to 10 a.m. On Seattle's Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Alternative Talk 1150 is like no other radio station. Here we provide a platform for the exchange of great ideas and positive energy. Our radio shows vary greatly, but do share a common goal of bettering listeners' lives. Perhaps you're ready to join our family of radio show hosts. Learn how affordable and rewarding it can be to host your own radio show. Call me, Eric Cream, at 425-653-1150. That's 425-653-1150. And let's discuss your radio dream. Adopt U.S. Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. Your daughter just had her first breakup. Do you, A, put yourself in her shoes? How could he do this to you? And for Sheila, she, she has split ends. B, console her. Oh, sweetie. This is going to happen a lot. Four, maybe five more times before you get married. C, take charge. Got to get this all straightened out. Keep a little talking to, man to man, mano a mano. Hey, Steve. It's now a good time? No? Okay, no problem. Bye. Or D, help her find a new boyfriend. I know a great place to meet boys. The internet. Nice, single boys. Never mind. How about some ice cream? As a parent, there are no perfect answers. But you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. 
For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. Notice anything different? You should. There's no other station like Alternative Talk, 1150 AM. And welcome back to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy, joined today by intuitive grief guide and podcast host of the show Coming Back. Her name is Shelby Forsythia. Uh, welcome back, Shelby. <laughs> so stoked to continue to be here. Yeah, so I actually, I wanted to, I, I love... Oh, you have had a big journey with grief. And my gosh, I would think for someone who now guides people through grief, it's you've experienced it on a number of different levels through a number of different um, uh, incidents in your life. Mm -hmm. So I would like to actually, before we go any further, define what grief means to you, because we I heard you give this definition not too long ago, and it's not what I would have expected. And I love your definition of grief because I think it would I think it'll be meaningful to our listeners out there. Oh, I love this. Um, this is one of my favorite things to tell people, because people often feel like they can't grieve. They don't have a right to grieve. It's been too long to grieve uh, or that a situation doesn't warrant grief. Mm -hmm. uh, and so. The grief recovery method, which is the modality that I was trained in, defines grief as the collection of emotions related to the end of or change in a normal pattern of behavior. Yeah. So there's nothing about death in there. Yeah. There's nothing about diagnosis in there. There's nothing even about loss in there. It's something changes permanently or something ends yeah. permanently. And then you have a collection of emotions, whether it's anger, sadness, rage, nostalgia, I mean, Bitterness, whatever comes up for you, that collection of emotions can just be classified by itself as grief relief. Yeah. You know, anything that comes up in relation to something ending or something changing, whether that's a life, a relationship, a career, a job, a pet loss move, anything you can lose or anything that can change. Yes. Election results. I mean, you can have grief over so many things. Yeah. Okay, and so what would you say characterizes or distinguishes the grief recovery method from, say, other ones? Like, what would can you give like highlights of what that entails? Oh, sure. So the grief recovery method as a modality, I love using this, and it was it's it's pretty founded. Like, it's been around for a little bit. It's been around since mm -hmm. the 1980s. Uh, okay. Started in California by two men who were not satisfied with what was available in terms of grief. And that's the case with a lot of we grief workers is we're not satisfied with, with what has helped us. So we're like, we're going to create what wasn't there. Right. Um, uh, one, I believe, suffered a major, major divorce. And the other one suffered uh, a couple deaths, including the death of his brother. But the, the premise of the grief recovery method and why I love using it so much is because there's a clear start and finish. And that doesn't mean there's a start and finish to your grief necessarily, but the process itself is a series of tools that you can come back to over and over and over again mm -hmm. with each new relationship that is lost or um, each new moment in your life that's been hard to lose. So the grief recovery method kind of starts off breaking down myths about grief, societal mm -hmm. myths. So mm -hmm. things like you need to be strong for others. Just give it time. Time heals all. If you keep busy, it will go away on its own. <laughs> Things like with pet loss, you can replace the loss. Or even with child loss, you can just have another child. You know, or like things like miscarriage even or stillbirth, you can have another child. Or things like don't feel bad, don't cry, blah, blah, blah. And then another statement where it's, where it's not okay. Society has made it not okay to show these negative emotions. So it goes from the grief recovery method goes from this very broad spectrum of breaking down societal myths about grief all the way down to working on a very specific loss in your life. And what I love about the grief recovery method is we do something that I personally call um, mind circling. 
okay. mind spinning or mind circling where you keep running over the same thoughts, the same, I wish this had been different. I wish I'd done this more. I wish I'd been better about X, Y, Z. And there are all these thoughts mm-hmm. that you think about in the context of a relationship or something that you lost. Um, and and they need to go somewhere. And so the grief recovery method is really great about mapping out those things on paper. Mm. And it's getting, I always phrase it, I'm doing a motion right now that listeners can't see, but it's all this circling above your head. I'm waving my hands above my head. And then you put it down on paper and it has somewhere to go and you can lay it out and see it uh, in front of you. And they do that through something called the loss history graph, where you literally map out your dawn of conscious memory, the first thing you ever can remember remembering, usually around the age of two to five, mm-hmm. to today. Mm-hmm. And you map out every single loss in your life that has ever happened, not only in terms of when it happened chronologically, but also in terms of severity, mm-hmm. how it emotionally impacted you. And you might find while doing this loss history graph that the thing that most emotionally impacted you wasn't the most recent loss, Interesting. which is sometimes the case. It might have been the loss of your dad at age 10 mm-hmm. or the loss of the grandfather that you never knew but have always heard about. It could also be a relationship that you lost, a major move where you never got to move back to your hometown. Whatever has has hit you, you you get to rank it not in terms only of chronologically, but you get to see severity as well. And then once you kind of determine that, you choose a relationship to work on. And these are all tools that you can carry through with, with different relationships. And usually you work on the relationship that has impacted you the most severely, the deepest line on that graph that you draw. And, and within that course of relationship, you get to put that mind circling about the relationship somewhere else. So when I did this practice with my mom, when I got certified in grief recovery it was it can be things as trivial as i'm sorry i threw away the pink socks that you got me for christmas because i hated the color pink and refused to wear it i'm sorry that hurt your feelings things i never got to say to her like that because we never she didn't live long enough for me to say it or or things as big as and we can even get into this later on the show as i forgive you for not accepting my sexuality as a person as a queer woman as your daughter that happened for you that happened for me and, and that's a huge forgive statement, but something that these things that we hold on to that just need to, again, transferring the energy of grief somewhere else yeah. to this piece of paper, to a letter. And when you do the grief recovery method, it's not just a letter you read in a room by yourself. You work with either a one-on-one with a practitioner, somebody like me, or you work with a group of people. You can find group classes uh, for grief recovery as well. So another human is there hearing, seeing, validating, being a witness to the pain you have endured. And that in terms of unlocking the weight of grief and the power of grief is so, so key, which is why I love the grief recovery method so much more than like the traditional five stages of grief, quote unquote, or, or things like just give it time or just get busy, get a new job, find a hobby, start picking up an instrument or something like that as like a quick fix. Yeah. This is involved. It's painful. I'm working with, you know, a couple of clients right now and they're like, this hurts. Yeah. It's like, it's like, you have a bullet wound and first you have to remove the bullet and clean the wound before it can actually heal. Right. And, um, and, and it's, it's big. You have to be in a place where you're ready to look at it. Absolutely. How do you know if you're ready? Mm. Usually, well, what the grief recovery method tells us and what one of my teachers told me very eloquently, it's when the numbness wears off as Ah. soon as the numbness wears off for some people, it's three months after loss for some people, they don't realize they're grieving until 10 years later. Yeah. So it's really different for everybody. But as soon as you're able to put some process into thinking about the relationship, reviewing your life since the loss happened, Uh as soon as you're ready to kind of put that input in, if you're still in a place where you want to complain, if you're still in a place where you are wallowing or using grief sometimes as an identity or as a victim story, yeah. maybe not quite ready. You can okay. look at the tools. You can certainly read through the book. I checked out the book and read it 
beginning to end by myself before even seeing a practitioner and then getting certified. Um, but you have to be in a space where you're willing to even allow in the thought, the possibility that grief could transform you. Okay. Yeah. So one of the books that you said was pivotal for you in your grief journey was um, a book that I'm sure many of our listeners out there have on their bookshelf, Many Lives, Many Masters, Brian Weiss. Um, I want to hear from your perspective why this book was so pivotal for you. And maybe for listeners out there who aren't familiar with it, sharing a little bit about what the book is or who Brian Weiss is. Yeah. So I actually don't know a lot about Brian Weiss uh, as a human. I know uh, <laughs> he's he helps people do uh, past life regressions. And I think he kind of blurs the line between therapy and spirituality a little bit, yes. where he brings people yeah. into this space where through hypnosis, they can be taken back into this was myself in the 1800s, this was myself in ancient Egypt, this was myself, et cetera, et cetera. And they see other people in these lifetimes that they have relationships with now today. Like my brother in this life was my mother in a past life or yes. my best friend or, or something of that nature. And the reason that this was transformative to me was not necessarily because of past lives, but because two reasons. First, because it opened the door to books on spirituality in general. Yep. Um, because of this, I discovered Conversations with God, which is one of my uh, all-time favorite books, um, yeah, as well as other other spirituality books that I love. Things by Elizabeth Gilbert, Brene Brown, things on vulnerability and the higher, sometimes the jester joking power of the universe to be funny or kind of play with us instead yeah. of, you know, be the angry God with a magnifying glass from like Bruce Almighty, which is <laughs> God's on an anthill with a magnifying glass and is punishing me for or being alive. Um, and and uh, and the second reason it was so powerful was because it kind of put my relationship with my mom, this is the most severe loss I've ever experienced, uh, into this higher, this possible higher order of maybe she and I were here to work something out. Yeah. Maybe I was here as a second generation girl who lost her mom because my mom lost her mom. Yes. Maybe I'm here to feel what that felt like. Maybe I'm here to carry on that legacy. Maybe she and I were siblings in a past life who didn't really get along and had to sort this out in this life, or maybe she and I were, maybe I was the mother in a yeah. different past life and didn't accept something about her. And so now in her dying, the tables are turned back on me and kind of yes. feeling what that relationship feels like. And it also just kind of opened me up to the possibility in general that there is life after death, that there's not even technically, technically, I'm using big air quotes here because right. this is not <laughs> always appreciated or understood in the grief community, is that there is technically no such thing as death. Our relationships continue after we are gone, just yeah. on a different plane, on a different space of understanding. My mom comes to me in different ways now. and Like how? Oh, I love this conversation. <laughs> um, I love, she sends me money, <laughs> but not in like, here's 20 bucks in the mail kind of way. Like right? not there's a signed check with her name on it. Uh, pennies a lot of the time oh, yeah. she's a pennies from heaven kind of lady uh -huh. and uh, and a lot of this attributed to her personality of even if there was a penny in a parking lot she's just like you pick it up it's free money what do you mean you know and it's not even the the, the, the frugalness of it she was just like it's good luck you yeah. know it doesn't matter how much it is it's 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 a joyful piece of your day that you hang on to yeah so she sends a lot of money she used to speak to me very strongly in numbers and will still do this sometimes um, and at first when they showed up, I, I couldn't figure out what was going on because it wasn't the same number. It wasn't okay. like you spoke earlier uh, before we got on the air about 1111. Uh, and for me, it wasn't the same series of numbers. It was palindromes. And so they'd come through as like 343-717-828. And I was like, what the? 
what's going on? I don't even my first address when I moved to Chicago, my first big move was without her was four two four as as my street address. And at first I couldn't figure out what was going on. And so of course Google's my best friend and I had my phone in my hand. I was typing in, you know, seeing palindrome, spirituality, num- numerology, what does this uh-huh. mean? And you know what else is a palindrome? Is mom. M O D A D. And so I, I'll tell you if anybody out there is seeing palindromes and you can't figure out why, it's probably a parent. D A D M O M. That's and, the first time I've heard that. I love that. Oh, show I, me. And, I, and it gave me chills the first time. I was like, of course that's what it is. <laughs> it was so revolutionary for me when it happened. And I was like, this is phenomenal. So numbers come to me a lot. And then music. She and I had a bond over music that was pretty ridiculous um, in the sense that. I think she always wanted to be more musical than she was. She never acknowledged how musical she was. She sang all the time. Yeah. Even just like in conversation and stuff, she'd be talking to somebody and she'd say hi to them, but she'd sing their name instead of saying it. Um, But when I was a little, 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 little kid, she used to brag all the time that I was world's happiest baby because I'd wake up an hour before the entire house and people would be like, oh, no, that's terrible. She was crying for a whole hour. And she's like, no, she'd sit in her crib and she'd sing to herself. Until the rest of the family came to get her. And and I begged to play the piano when I was five, six, seven. And my mom just nourished this yeah. musical gene, this musical gift in me. And she and I would um, sing together sometimes at the piano. And the, the proudest I ever remember her being of me was during a piano recital when I was in mm. third grade. And um, that's not to say she wasn't proud of me at other times. But that was, she radiated yeah. motherly pride and uh and it was beautiful so i hear a lot of songs that remind me of her both both really funny songs like things by prince who Uh i didn't know she loved until after she died so now (laughs) one of her sisters one of my aunts was like oh my god your mom and i used to get ready to go dancing and we'd listen to prince and so now every time i hear prince i think of her but also like a lot of religious songs she would identify with um because she was part of a a, like a close-knit women's choir that Mm -hmm. was like five or six of them and they sang these pretty religious songs um but also just funny stuff, just just funny stuff that comes on, uh, silly songs. So a lot of things that, that come through the radio through electronics. She did turn on a, key, a tea kettle one time, oh, and shit. that was really funny. That was like two days after she died. She scared the whole house. It was really <laughs> funny. Um, That's awesome. But she comes through a lot of ways now. It's just on a different different level. I have to be looking for her. Yes. She's not as easily accessible as she used to be. Oh, that's interesting. At least on like a can't call her, can't write her an email kind of right. way not by everyday means right and so you know mentioning um I, I wanted to return to this because I've been of the opinion for a while now or my personal cosmology is such that when we incarnate in these bodies we come here with certain potentials we decide to come in with certain other souls so that we can grow together but it's I've always felt it's really easy for me to say that because I haven't had any huge loss in my life. And we talked about this uh, earlier today that grief is relative to the person Mm -hmm. who's experiencing Mm -hmm. it. But it's just, it's interesting because you have suffered one of the bigger, what we would consider as humans, one of the bigger losses, loss of a parent at an early age. um, Do you believe that, that we, that like you came in with your mom to perhaps work some things out and that you would actually from where you sit now, say that that could be in the highest and best interest of all involved, that you lost your mom while in this human life? Yeah. But in in the moment, I would have rolled my eyes at you and told you yeah. to F off, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I tell people perspective on grief comes with time, but that's not what fixes you. It also comes with experience. So there's this visual I love in this book called Grief Works, which is um, by this 
What lady named Julia Samuel? She lives in the UK. She's a, a psychotherapist and actually a good friend to the late uh, Princess Diana. Okay. And she has this piece in her book. She brings in a graph from another perspective where it has a, a black dot in the middle, a big black dot that says grief. Mm-hmm. And then she, there's another circle around it that's white. And it says, inside the white circle, it says, over time, life grows around the loss. Mm. So the black dot never gets any smaller. Grief never goes away. Uh-huh. But as you zoom out from grief, as I've lived now almost five years without my mom, and then I'll be living 10 years without my mom, 20 years without my mom, soon I'll hit my mom's age and have outlived my mom. Yep. That brings more life growing around the loss. And so I can look back at the grief and say, that still was the effing hardest thing that has ever happened to me in my entire life. And yet here is what my life is as a result of that. So in terms of like contractually entering into the universe to work something out with her, I would say yes, but that is only because of this spiritual path I have chosen to follow. The perspective would come no matter what, because I think I believe that comes with all griefs. If you're willing to look at your grief and say, "Okay, my life has grown around the loss and here's what I've learned since. Um, But that that spiritual notion that we do come into this world with relationships to work out with different people. Absolutely. And you know what? You know what she taught me that I'm so kind of frustrated and yet humored (laughs) that she taught me. You don't need a mom is what comes through for me. And it's not in this negative way of like, oh, you don't need me. And, you know, I'll just shove off and die. And you don't you don't need somebody (laughs) to take care of you. But but in this sense of. I have this is I get such big chills when I talk about this, (laughs) I, I have come to this space where I was so convinced that I needed somebody outside of myself to take care of me. Ah. And I was so convinced that without a mother in the world, I was helpless or not whole or not capable. And working with a couple of different coaches, because we grief practitioners have to have our own people that we work with. We can't just, you know, put our energy there. I have found in me this maternal energy that I never knew existed. Huh. I have never looked at myself as a mother. I've never wanted to be a mother. And it's not for any negative reason. I just never have looked at children and been like, I want that. I mm-hmm. need to nourish or nurture something. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because almost this instinct was almost waiting for my mom to die so it could take over and teach me how to mother myself. Mm-hmm. And not even in the sense that like, I can't make my own oatmeal in the morning or tie my own shoes or like things like that. But this energy of you are safe here, you are taken care of. I have created a haven for you. Yes kind of I always get this visual of like mama bird kind of encircling her arms around the nest or uh-huh. her eggs um and I I didn't know I had that I didn't know that was inside of me and I also didn't know I had that capacity to nurture other people in the way that comes through when I do grief work as well I would have never been in grief work period yeah. if my mom had never died so in a weird way I'm grateful for that which you'll find a lot of counselors therapists uh, mentors people who work with grief often say that I would have never done this if this hadn't happened but also I didn't know I had the capacity to to engage with other people in it as deeply as I do and pull them through not just as a teaching spirit but as a maternal spirit mm, that's, that's beautiful. wild <laughs> yeah. it blows my mind sometimes sometimes I look at like I'm looking at the ceiling right now but I look at my mom I'm like really you did all that just so I could learn this wasn't there an easier way right <laughs> um yeah. She laughs at me a lot. It's really fun. It's really fun. I love that you can still feel that, that laughter, the connection. Well, I want to switch gears um, a little bit here just for a question, because from the perspective of the observer, um, or, or as let's say I am witnessing you, Shelby, in your grief, 
And often I think as people, we want to help. We want to say the wise, right thing, but then we don't know what to say. We don't want to trigger you. If it's been several months, we don't know what's appropriate. So from your perspective, how do you advise people on how to support someone who is in grief? What is the right thing to say or the wrong thing or how do you approach it? The first thing I'll tell people right now, I'll do a little uh, shameless plug. Uh, <laughs> the third episode of my podcast is called How to Comfort Someone Who's Grieving. Okay. And the 20th episode of my podcast is called Grief and the Five Love Languages, and it's how to <sighs> comfort somebody in their specific love language. What? So if you know what it is already, or if you can kind of guess maybe they're a gifts person or an acts of service person or things like that, you can find tips in both of those episodes of Coming Back, Yeah. Um, which are some of my most listened to podcasts. Uh, episodes, episode three and episode 20, just in case uh, you got a pen and paper, you're near your computer or your phone. But And the podcast is the coming podcast back. The podcast is coming back, conversations on life after loss. Um, but, but the things I tell, most people feel this enormous pressure to be sage or to be comforting or to be wise right. or to be helpful in the midst of grief. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, you can't be. It's impossible. <laughs> And, and if you are, you won't know it in the moment. You won't <laughs> feel like you're being wise or sage in the moment. You know what you will feel like is that you're being honest. You're being vulnerable. You're saying, this sucks. I don't know what to say. I'm so sorry this happened. Can I just sit here with you? Yeah. Would you like a hug? I mean, things that are so basically simple mean the most in the world. And I'll tell you, the people even in my own grief that were the most helpful were not people who said, oh, she's in a better place now. Yeah. They were... The random college professor who noticed I was having a horrible day invited me into her office where I literally just broke down in tears because mm -hmm. she's like, I can tell something's wrong, what's happening. I couldn't even get the full sentence out before I started crying. And then she let me take a, take a nap on her couch Ugh. in her office. She just let me have that space to put everything down for like 10 minutes and just take a nap. Yeah. And, and it's this... I had an author on my show. Her name is Carrie Egan, and she has she's a hospice chaplain who's written a beautiful book called On Living. She's mm -hmm. also written another book called Fumbling, which is a great little book on grief. Um, but she has this phrase that she uses that I love to tell people, and that is witnessing unflinchingly. Mm. And it's so hard to do in grief because so much of what people show you when they're grieving is their darkness exacerbated, their bad habits exacerbated, Interesting. their tears, their sadness, their emotions amplified and exacerbated. And like everything seems so huge and it's so our instinct to like quick put a Band-Aid on it, quick mm -hmm. have a phrase, quick have a sage advice, quick have a quote, quick write something in the sympathy card right. and just be like, I did my due diligence, I'm done, you know, I've said what I need to say, everything is better now. And and the trick with with grief is that it's a long-term thing. A lot of times people disappear after the first month or so, Yeah. Um, especially with bigger losses. And a lot of people think that saying something once is enough. Uh -huh. And so if you're looking for like really quick things to do to support somebody who's grieving, text, email, call, say hello, however you prefer to communicate, whether that's in person or digitally, hi, I'm thinking of you. Mm. Hi, I know today's a hard day. If it's a death anniversary, a grief anniversary, an anniversary of something, or a holiday, Hey, I know it's your first Valentine's Day without him. I'm mm -hmm. so sorry. I'm thinking of you. Mm -hmm. And then the ball's in their court. Mm -hmm. Literally, they can choose to respond to you. They can choose not to respond to you as, as a griever. And also, don't, don't ask how people are. Okay. How are you? <laughs> are you kidding me? I'm, I've felt 50 things today, and it's been 20 minutes. <laughs> like, uh, uh, so something that Sheryl Sandberg says in her book, Option B, which is really phenomenal, is how are you today? 
how are you feeling right this second? Even yes. narrowing it down to where are you in this moment? If some right. people speak a little spiritual, where are you in this moment? Where are you resonating? Right. Things like that that they appeal to. That's a great question to ask is where are you resonating today in this moment right now? And then don't say, how can I help? Let me know how I can help. Let me know what I can do for mm-hmm. you. Because then that puts pressure on the griever to think yeah. of something. Right. Like I can't possibly think of all the things that need doing. So if you're a person who you know, lives near a grocery store, bring some groceries by. If you are a person mm-hmm. with kids, say, let me take your kids for an hour today and have a play date so you can have some time in the house to yourself. Yeah. Or take a shower, you know, take a shower, yeah. clean the house, uh, go get the mail. I mean, whatever you need to do, run some errands right. without your kids. If you're a person who has a dog, hey, let me walk your dog today. Yeah. Things like that. Or let me take your car to the car wash. I mean, stuff that even seems trivial or maybe not necessary right. to do is stuff that says, oh, hey, I'm here and I still care. A month, I mean, even set timers for yourself, set calendar reminders. Hey, check out on my friend three months from now, see how she's doing. That's a fabulous you know, idea. Things like that. So there's, yeah. a, there's a lot that can be done. And that first uh, podcast episode I mentioned, How to Comfort Somebody Who's Grieving, there's actually segments of the podcast where here's things you can do in the immediate aftermath, in the weeks and months following, and in the years following. Oh, that's because awesome. Because there's different things you can do for different times. And people will still grieve. We continue to grieve until we die. Yeah. Because relationships continue on. So 20 years after somebody's lost their dad, they're still going to grieve them when his birthday comes around. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. I can't believe we're right about the end of time. So I'm just going to say, Shelby, thank you for being here today. Um, I have been joined today by Shelby Forsythia. The website is shelbyforsythia.com. Forsythia is spelled F-O-R-S-Y-T-H-I-A. Um, Shelby, we've got, gosh, a minute left at that. And I just, you wrote something that I wanted to close with. You said moving first thing in the morning when you were going through your grief journey. Moving first thing in the morning was comparable to wading through mud and iron boots. And I just, as we close today, what in our final minute can you tell the folks out there that are feeling, that are in that muddy place still? I'm actually going to close with how I close all of my podcasts. Okay. And this is, I see you. I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Mm. Thank you, Shelby. We see you up here. We do. (laughs) We are witnessing you in this grief. We totally are. You're doing it right. Proud of you and even the most minuscule work that you're doing. And we love you. There is an energetic support out there that's with you. Absolutely. So the podcast, if you'd like to uh, find out more about Shelby and connect with her and to learn more about her work, the podcast is... Um, uh, coming back conversations on life after loss the website is shelbyforsythia.com you have been listening to sunny in seattle i am your host sunny joy thanks for joining us joining us this week and have a great weekend everyone